had to send Lydia to my office to see if my Bible was in there. Couldn't find where I put it. We'll still talk about it nonetheless. So we've already uh, watched a video. We've read the scripture. I guess we can uh, listen to me talk a little bit afterwards as well about the same passage. But um, The first public flight of a hot air balloon took place on June 4th, 1783, in the French village of Annonay. It was the first step in the history of human flight. In the presence of what history notes as a respectable assembly of a great many other people, uh, a, a respectable assembly and a great many other people, and accompanied by great cheering, the balloon was cut from its moorings and set free to rise majestically into the noon sky, 6,000 feet into the air. It came back down to earth several miles away in a field where it was promptly attacked by villagers with pitchforks, <laughs> tearing it to pieces, thinking it was an instrument of evil. That same uh, just goes to show us that uh, what some rightly regard as incredibly good news, many will also reject in their fear of the unknown. Right? That same tension is borne out to, uh, to G borne out in Jesus's final journey to Jerusalem, as we see his uh, celebrated entry into the city. But we also know what will happen in just a few days' time. And I asked you to get that, but I also found my Bible right here. This is where I set it down. Goes to show you. Lost my head this morning. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I just want to thank you for the opportunity we have to reflect on your word in so many different ways this morning. I pray that as we read this familiar text, as we reflect on it today, that you might yet speak to us something new and fresh or even familiar as a reminder to draw our hearts towards you. I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our spirits, that you might somehow speak through my own broken lips in order to speak something that will be encouraging and edifying for our community, that we might come to know you more this morning. Amen. So as we continue on um, in our reading of Mark's gospel, entering into Holy Week, we read afresh the story of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem with the full knowledge of the rejection that will follow, the ultimate good news of Jesus' forgiveness and victory over death. But let's not rush our way to the cross and the empty tomb just yet, because there's still much more to be learned on the way. Uh, next week, we actually will not be reading in Mark on Easter Sunday. We're going to read a little bit from First Peter. Um, Tradition has it that Mark's gospel was written mostly on the testimony of, of Peter. And rather than try to skip all of the chapters that are between here and the cross and the resurrection, uh, I figured we would take a break and, and, and look at First Peter next week, and then after that we'll return and keep going on in the gospel of Mark. But this week on Palm Sunday, we're beginning the last major section of Mark's gospel. And as everything we've read so far comes to a head in Christ's final leg of his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, in our first week in the Gospel of Mark, we read about John the Baptist fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. We'll see if this works here in a second. As one calling out in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Lord. And that Sunday we explored how God, I'll get this to work in a second. Maybe. There we go. That Sunday we explored how God prepares a way in the wilderness, drawing us out to remove distractions so that we might hear his voice. 
to prepare us through repentance, calling us to put aside our sin, turn towards him in faithful expectation. And also preparing us for the Holy Spirit. John talked about how he baptized with water and one who's one is coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, inviting us to receive an outpouring of the presence of God that would transform our hearts. In today's text, I think we see these themes revisited but heightened, particularly because the time has drawn nearer and Jesus has drawn nearer and closer. Now it's not the voice in the wilderness, it's a voice right outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It's not a call just for preparation and repentance, it's a celebration because the time has arrived. And it's not an invitation to receive the Holy Spirit, but an announcement that God is here. The Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus' presence, the presence of God is there whether they're ready for it or not. So let's, let's talk about these this morning. Jesus is acting strange here. I don't mean strange because he's asking the disciples to borrow a cult or with a curious set of directions. It's always kind of an interesting part of the story. It's strange that he's proving, uh, uh, providing this sort of dramatic show coming into Jerusalem. He's been known to do strange things before, right? To draw crowds. He's been known to give enigmatic instructions for things. But what's out of the ordinary here, especially in Mark's gospel, is that so far, Jesus has kind of gone out of his way to keep things secret. As he has performed miracles, as he has done other things that have drawn crowds, he, he seems like he's always kind of stepped away. And he's told people not to tell anyone about who he is. Even as he dramatically demonstrates his power and authority, he never seems to want the news to spread very far. But today, as he approaches Jerusalem for Passover, accompanied by fellow travelers from Bethany and Bethpage, he makes no effort to quiet down their raucous singing and uh, songs of messianic hope. Instead, he seems to encourage it, right? With his dramatic entrance. It was typical practice for the Jewish people to, to make that last leg of their pilgrimage into Jerusalem on foot. This is what Jesus would have done every other year making the same trip, but not this year. This year he rides on a colt on the foal of a donkey. Why ride this year? Why ride in that way? Well, both Matthew and Luke tell us it's specifically to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think it's in Matthew's gospel where uh, because of the kind of uh, idiosyncrasy in there, uh, the colt or the foal of a donkey that Matthew includes that he wrote on both, uh, just to make sure that we, that we get that, um, that it's fulfilling this prophecy here. But Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem in the most dramatic way possible, visually declaring that he is the one these people have been waiting for. Way back in the beginning of Mark, John called out preparing the way in the wilderness, repent and prepare the way for the Lord. Well, the preparation time is over. Jesus is right here at the doorstep. So God prepares the way in the wilderness, but Jesus' ultimate goal is the center of our lives, right? I, that first week, I made a comment about how the Lord does often meet us in places that are removed and distant. He meets us in the lonely places, in the dry places, the vulnerable places, because it's there that he can speak the most clearly. That, that we have less distractions in our lives. And so it seems we can hear 
more clearly. But that's not the only place he wants us. He wants us in the entirety of our lives. God asks us to leave our busyness, our comfort, our regular routine. He wants our affection not just at camps and worship services or special retreats, but his goal is to capture us in our busy schedules and the everyday sort of stuff of life, to be reoriented with him at the center. And Jesus shows up to meet us there, whether we greet him with praises or with pitchforks, right? Jesus brings true salvation to us. And fortunately, in this moment, as Jesus arrives, it says they came out spreading their cloaks and branches on the road, essentially laying out the red carpet for Jesus. They sang a song, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Uh, our English word Hosanna comes from a Greek word, Hosanna, which comes from the Hebrew, uh, Hoshiana. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But the most uh, direct place that we find this phrase in Hebrew is Psalm 118, verse 25. It actually pops up all over the, um, the text in our, our Hebrew scriptures. But in Psalm 118, 25, it says, Lord, save us. It's that same word, Hosanna, Hoshiana. Grant us success. It literally means save us, please. It's a cry for help, not just a praise. But the meaning had changed over the years. In the psalm itself, it's even immediately followed by the announcement, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. So it's if almost this cry for help, this cry for salvation is answered in the same breath. That uh, over the years, this phrase then became so associated with the psalm and the expectation of God's deliverance, it came to mean not just save us, but salvation is here. Praise the Lord. Help has arrived. It's kind of like the difference between a plea and a praise, between cry and confidence. They're, they're mixed in together here. So the Jewish people have been waiting for rescue, and now in Jesus, this crowd is confident that help, that rescue, has arrived. It's popular to point out kind of the stark contrast between the praise that we see here and the cries that we'll hear from the crowd later in the week. Crucify him. Crucify him. The point usually made is how fickle our hearts can be, right? That so quickly turning from praise to bitter rejection. But I'd suggest that might not necessarily apply here because uh, there's, there's not necessarily a reason to believe that this is the same crowd on Palm Sunday as we find later. This crowd praising Jesus is a group of fellow pilgrims from Bethany a town where Jesus has some pretty strong connections. It's where Lazarus lived, uh, and, and Mary and Martha, people there had just seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, they had a lot of reason to trust in Jesus. There's a large crowd following him for that reason. But the crowd in Jerusalem is a diverse mix of Jews from all over the empire who have showed up to the city for this festival of pa Passover. And prominent in that group are the Pharisees and the religious teachers who have been against him since virtually day one, of his ministry, right? So while, yes, our hearts can be fickle, perhaps the deeper lesson for reflection here is how much resistance our hopes for salvation may, may receive from others. That even as we hope in God doing something big and new in our world and bringing light in dark places, 
that the darkness might meet that with some hostility. I think of the Pixar movie, The Incredibles. Has anyone watched this before? Uh, the basic premise is that there used to be all of these superheroes around, but they ended up having to go into hiding because they were getting sued for saving people who didn't want to be saved. Right? With Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, salvation has arrived, but not everyone is happy about it. Rescue for the weak and the broken would also mean disruption for those who were pretty content with the way things were. In John's baptism, God had been preparing by calling people to repentance. When Jesus shows up in this triumphal entry, he's preparing the way here by showing up and clearing house in a different way. Salvation isn't just about repentance and forgiveness. That's part of it. But true salvation is also about liberating us from all the powers of sin and death that keep us enslaved to everything but Jesus. It's about breaking the bonds of shame and fear that keep us returning to sinful, unhealthy behaviors because they're safe and they're comfortable for us. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem this way, it challenged the religious leaders who relied on the small protections they got from Rome even though it meant oppression for their people. So in the same way, when Jesus stands knocking at the door of our hearts, when Jesus arrives for us, he challenges our allegiance to our own sins, small and large. And we ask, will we let Jesus in? Or will we cling to our own self-interest? Will we trust him to provide for us in our need? Or will we cheat and still steal? Will we withhold our generosity from others and take care of ourselves first? Will we trust him to protect us? Or will we lash out at any threat to prove our dominance even before the threat's even presented itself? Will we trust him to guide us in vulnerability? Or will we nurse the addictions that we have in secret? What's keeping us from receiving the Lord with praise, from trusting him fully. Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Will we let him in? Most of us would say yes, but I'd also ask, what, is there anything in us that feels like we need to clean house before we can really let Jesus in? I'm talking about cleaning house because Jesus does just that in a moment. The passage ends on a curious note as Jesus enters the temple courts in Jerusalem. But he doesn't do anything because it's late, it says. Instead, he and the disciples, they return to Bethany, resolving to come back the next day. That's a curious detail because what happens in the temple uh, when he arrives the next day? Does anybody remember that? What happens in the temple the next day? Cleans it. Turns over tables, right? He has a pretty uh, interesting reaction when he gets in there. Thinking about that this week, I was reminded of two stories I heard from my, my friend Nate before. The first uh, occurred in Bristol, England. There was a gentleman who would sneak out in the middle of the night to correct grammar mistakes on signs. They called him the, gra the grammar vigilante. He'd go through the city, and any time he found an apostrophe that wasn't supposed to be there, or one that should be, he'd sneak out at night and use little stickers to cover up 
an incorrect apostrophes or a sticker of an apostrophe to put where it needed to be on the sign. They also called him the apostrophizer. That's his other name. <laughs> the second story is a, a story from Detroit, Michigan, where there was a lady who trained a pack of squirrels to attack her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend. That's really all there is to the story, that just that she did that. This lady got so mad at her ex that she took the time to train these squirrels to attack and to recognize who they needed to attack. At that point, it's almost like, are you even mad? Right? That's just impressive, right? It also reminds me of uh, um, the story about Samson and the foxes, right? He gets mad at the Philistines, and it says that he ties these foxes together by their tails with uh, torches and sends them to the olive fields. I'm like, who has time to catch foxes like that, much less tie them together? How do how you even think of that? But what do these stories share in common? These people were so incensed at what they perceived to be an injustice, they went to some pretty extraordinary lengths to do something about it. Right? They planned it out. It's not just a heat of the moment thing. There's some planning that goes into it. And that's kind of like what we see going on with Jesus in the temple. I'd always read that passage sometimes with this idea that Jesus came in and he just saw what was happening and he was so angry about it that just in the heat of the moment that he let loose. Right? But no, he, he saw it the night before. He had some time to think on what he was going to do when he came the next day. He had some time to ruminate on this. It wasn't just sudden emotion coming over him. He had a plan. As a side note about this as well, uh, many people have actually pointed out the actual services that are being uh, provided here, rendered by the merchants and the money changers, were not necessarily the things that were at issue. Pilgrims to Jerusalem were coming from all sorts of places for the Passover. Many of them turned to merchants to purchase the animals that they would need in order to, to bring for sacrifice. Or some of them had different kinds of currency um, as they were coming from different parts of the empire. Uh, and so they, they relied on these services in order to, uh, to do what they needed to do. You might even argue that the convenience of the proximity of the temple of it being there added some value to what was happening. This would have created, though, an opportunity for the priests then to cooperate with certain vendors to make a good deal of money off of what is meant to be a system of worship and devotion. And so it may be that what Jesus is doing here is clearing house because it really is a matter of well-being for his people. That um, these services in this place is creating an opportunity for exploitation. You think about whenever you go to like a, a county or a state fair or to any sort of amusement park, how much is the food that you need to buy, right? Way more than you would ever buy elsewhere because there's, it's the location that you're purchasing it in. And there's an opportunity to gouge prices here. It's a fascinating parallel then, what's going on with Jesus clearing out the temple and then John the Baptist's work. John had called people to repentance to prepare them for God to draw near. Jesus now cleanses the temple because he has drawn near. And this is unacceptable to him. When Jesus claims his rightful place at the center of our lives, it means that things are going to have to change. The dwelling of God's spirit in us is going to result in life change. And sometimes that comes in sweet, gentle conviction from the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's not so gentle. Sometimes Jesus has to turn over some tables in our hearts. The difference is generally made in our level of willingness to cooperate. 
to hand it all over to him, right? You may have had this experience with your kids or uh, maybe remember it happening, happening to you. Your kid's room is a mess and you tell them several times to clean it up. We do this with our kids and they don't do it. And then I will come in and say, well, if you don't clean it up, I'm going to clean it up. And guess where it's going to go? In the trash, right? Rather than into the right place. Because I don't have time to go through all this. My kids hate this, especially Deacon. He does not like this, uh, this statement. And uh, that's a poor analogy, though, right, as well. Because we're all imperfect parents with limited patience. I have very little patience. But the principle is, is what matters here bears out over and over again throughout the Gospels that Jesus has this incredible patience for sinful seekers who come to him in humility. He always has patience, but he has little grace, it seems like, for those who stubbornly hold on to the reins, thinking that they've got it figured out, the people who don't believe they're even sick or even in need of a savior. Whether they're caught in blatant, lewd sin like King Herod or entrenched in self-serving religiosity like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There will come a time when Jesus clears house for the Lord, whether they are ready for it or not. So here's some concluding thoughts for us this week. Next week is Resurrection Sunday. In the span of a few weeks time, er, of a week's time, Jesus goes from the triumphant entry to a rocky reception, to straight up accusation, betrayal, arrest, sentencing to death, to the cross, and then finally, after three days down, this glorious vindication and victory in the empty tomb. As we remember this week and relive this out in our special services that we'll have, I invite you to reflect upon your own response to Jesus in your life. As he shows up with his mercies new every morning, as he shows up as Lord of our life, to claim our hearts and all the decisions that we make uh, throughout the day and every day? Will we greet him with shouts of praise? Or will we greet him with suspicion? Or somewhere in the middle? Indifference? Uncertainty? Will it depend on the, uh, the mood and our circumstances? But how will we respond to Jesus as he claims our life? May we all, with glad hearts, open up the gates and let the king come in. Let's pray. Lord, I must admit, that often I'm not ready. I'm not ready for your arrival. I'm not ready for everything that you ask of me when I come to you. Even though your, your burden is light, your yoke is easy, that I often want to cling to the ways that I've always done it, my own comforts, to have the control over my own life. But as you arrive, Lord, I pray that you would help to give me, to give us humility, to soften our hearts, that we might let go, so that when you
claim the totality of our hearts as you are so worthy of that it would not feel like tables being turned over and things being yanked out of place, but it would be a gentle restoration and a cleansing. We thank you that you have already done work in us. You have already begun the work of cleansing. We pray for more. That we would experience your salvation in full. The joy of a life lived with you. That we would experience life that is truly life. Amen.